0: We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what He calls us to do exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Well, good morning everyone. So glad to see you today. This fall we've been in the book of Nehemiah as Eric mentioned, and we're taking this story and there's so many layers to how this story unfolds, there's so many parallels and lessons that we can draw into our individual lives. A lot of times we'll just take a book of the Bible and go through it chapter by chapter, let the story unfold, and then uh, that's exactly what we've been doing. We've spent a lot of time kind of looking back to that first couple of verses in the story of Nehemiah that are kind of a springboard that set the background and and the the landscape for the whole larger story. One of those verses is Nehemiah chapter 1-3 where Nehemiah is informed from some of his brothers about the trouble and the the disgrace that God's people find themselves in back in Jerusalem, in Judea. And I was thinking about that word trouble uh, because in our lives, we do experience and face, encounter a lot of different types of trouble. And in the story of Nehemiah, there's two types of trouble that the people of God experience. And verse 3 refers to the first kind of trouble. But as we go through the story, a different kind of trouble begins to emerge. So let's talk about the first kind of trouble for a moment. There's the kind of trouble that we face in our lives when we oppose God, when we oppose his will, his design, his purpose, his commandments. When we rebel against God, there's a kind of trouble that comes to us. So after Joseph's brother's sold him into slavery. They threw him into that pit in the, in the book of Genesis. They sold him into slavery. Trouble followed them their entire lives. And they reasoned later in life that the reason that they were in trouble was because they were being punished for ignoring their brother's cries of distress when they thought they killed him. They thought, that he was done for, and and Joseph cried out for mercy, and they hardened their hearts and didn't respond, and they thought that the trouble throughout their lives was a result of God punishing them for what they did to Joseph. So there's a kind of trouble that comes when we disobey God, when we do evil, when, uh, you know, there's that kind of trouble. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord God himself warned Moses that trouble would come upon his people if they opposed him, if they rebelled against him. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, you might want to make a note of that. The Lord comes to Moses and he says, Moses, you're about to die, all right? You're you're about to rest with your ancestors. And when that happens, the people are going to prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering. They're going to forsake me. They're going to abandon me. They're going to go and follow these other gods, They'll break my covenant that I've made with them. And Noah or Moses, when that happens, my anger is going to burn against them. And I will abandon them. And I'll hide my face from them. Such that they become easy prey to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, to the Persians. Many troubles and afflictions are going to come on them. And on that day, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, haven't these troubles come because God is no longer with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all the evil they've done in turning to other gods. There is trouble and affliction that comes, a disgrace that comes when we turn to other gods, when we turn away from the living God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 31, the Lord taught Moses a little jingle, a little song. You don't hear it sung these days. But he says, teach the Israelites these lyrics, this song. Have them sing it so that this song will be a witness against them, against the Israelites when they turn away from me. And here's the song. I can't sing like Eric, by the way. I'm not even going to try. When I bring them into the land, I don't know. I swore to give their ancestors. How am I doing, Laura? I'm not Michael Bublé. She's not going to listen. <laughs> a land flowing with milk and honey. They'll eat, their fill, and prosper. They will turn to other gods and worship them, despising me and breaking my covenant. Ugh! That's not quite the uplifting song that we were hoping to be taught by God. It's a song of warning. It's a song that when you sing it, God acts as a witness against you. That's not those uplifting praise songs. But anyway, many troubles and afflictions are going to come. This song will testify against you because your descendants, uh, because you have turned away from me. I know what you're prone to do even before I take them into the land. I know what they're prone to do. I know what's going to happen. So Moses wrote down this song and taught it to the Israelite community. I've heard a lot of songs in the church, but we've never, they don't play this one on Christian radio. It's too negative maybe, I don't know. There's a trouble that comes when we turn away from God, when we oppose him, when Israel demanded that God appoint a king over them like all the other nations. They're like, we're kind of tired of being led by God. We want kings like all the other nations have. Well, what was the decision they were really making? Well, today you're rejecting your God. If you want someone else to rule over, you're rejecting the God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. Uh, When you say you want a different king, that's the God that you're turning away from. Job and his friends understood that those who sow trouble reap trouble. The biggest trouble you can can sow in your life is running from God. The psalmist admonish us not to run from God. God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's our helper who's always found in times of trouble. You don't want to run away from that God. So this first kind of trouble is what we find in verse 3. The people had been running, and now they must learn to return to their God. Psalm after psalm talks about this. Psalm 77, 91, 94, 102, 107. It declares that when we cry out to God in our trouble, even if that trouble is of our own making, even if that trouble is of our own sin and disgrace, our own uh, idolatry or adultery or, or whatever it may be with other gods, Unlike Joseph's stubborn brothers, the Lord hears our cries of distress. When we cry out to God, he rescues us from the pit. He saves us from our distress. You kind of wonder if Nehemiah remembered the song that the Lord taught Moses to teach the Israelites. Because when he hears of trouble and disgrace, it's like there's a trigger. Trouble and distress. What do you do? He weeps. He fasts, he mourns, he prays before the God of the heaven. King David, when he was in trouble and distress, he created the mess himself. He sinned. What did he do? He confessed. He went before the Lord and asked the Lord to purify and refine and change him. No matter how deep the trouble you may find yourself in this morning, even trouble of your own making, there's mercy and grace to be found when you come to God and call out to him. That's very encouraging. That's how this story in Nehemiah starts. You can do it on a personal level, a family level, a national level. You can repent and return to God when you're in trouble. But there's another kind of trouble that emerges in the story of Nehemiah. And it's the second kind of trouble that I think sometimes we wrestle with just as much, although it's different. There's a kind of trouble that we do face when we serve God. Positively, sincerely, faithfully, there's a trouble that emerges. When Moses went to the Israelites, serving God to redeem them and rescue them from slavery, when he showed up, the people said to him, Moses, ever since you've showed up, we've had nothing but trouble with Pharaoh. There's a kind of trouble that comes even when you're serving God. So the people, they found a kind of comfort in being slaves. And as long as they kept the status quo, there was kind of a, a pseudo-peace to that. And they preferred that pseudo-peace over redemption. They were comfortable. And, I, you know, we need to think about these things a little because we can kind of get lulled into a sense of complacency with our sin. And even something that's broken, even trouble and disgrace can become a kind of comfortable status quo. But when God leads us out of the status quo, there can be in the short term this sense of trouble. Things aren't working by the old rules. Uh, you know, uh, there's something new emerging, it's uncomfortable, it's unknown, it's unfamiliar, it's costly, it's painful and God's people have sometimes rejected even redemption because it was new and uncomfortable and and there is painful and hard work to do and, and as we do this story we're going to get into what some of that interior work in our lives is that's really hard, the physical work's easy, stacking bricks, that's easy, anybody can do that but the interior work, it can be very painful and and the way that it disrupts relationships, the, the kind of trouble that comes maybe in your family or your marriage or your workplace or, or with your government or whoever, you know like Nehemiah begins to show us how, as they serve God, as they rebuilt this wall, trouble emerged. We get a glimpse of it in Nehemiah chapter two, verse 10. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite. These officials, when they heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, what it says they were greatly displeased. You know, people might get unhappy if you serve God. People might get unhappy if you have a little bit of a personal revival. People might get unhappy if you start seeking God and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the first sign of that is displeasure. That look of displeasure, you know what I'm talking about? When you do some act of devotion or, uh, you know, stand for righteousness, maybe even some little, you, you change your priorities, or you change your schedule around, you make time for the, that look of displeasure as you begin to genuinely seek God, that first time you go a little bit off the script of the status quo, that look of displeasure is often the first sign of the second kind of trouble. Displeasure is where it starts. In Nehemiah, how dare you break the status quo? How dare you change the rules of the game, change the rule of your life? How dare you? As God strengthens the hands of these builders, they're building this wall, they're changing their identity back to repentance and and seeking God. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19, a few verses later, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official. And now also there's a third turkey. There's Geshem, the Arab. Who's he? Now there's three of them. There's two. They're they're like metastasizing. Now they're not just displeased. What's the Bible tell us? They mocked and despised us, Nehemiah writes. And they said, what is it that you're doing? Are you guys rebelling against the king of Persia? Are you rebelling? Is that is this a, a coup? What, what's going on here? So now they're growing in number. And it's not just displeasure. Now it's mockery and they're being despised. So think about in your life that first sign of displeasure, that disapproval that people have because you want to live for God. But then... The mocking begins. We don't like being the subject of ridicule. I don't like it any more than you do. It's not very pleasant. You turn on the TV, you turn on late night, you read in the paper, whatever, you read a book, you know, you listen to music, you watch a TV show. It's not fun to always represent God and to and to be the, the butt of jokes and ridicule and, and not just displeasing look, but people's disdain. But that's where it goes. Uh, how many times have you endeavored to love God or love people in the way that God commands and, and someone says, well, 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 you know, what do we have here? Or, or who do you think you are? Do you, oh, do you now think you're better than us because you go to church or read your Bible or pray? Or, or, or what are you doing, getting a little jailhouse religion? Uh, are you becoming a Bible thumper? The ridicule. And if you don't take your cue... If you don't, you know, here's the look, the stink eye, displeasure. You don't take the cue there. Okay, now we're going to ridicule and mock. If you don't take your cue there, the mockery escalates into accusation. People impugn. They don't just despise you. uh, Now they impugn your motive. You must be doing something. Sinister. There's some evil thing going on here beneath the scenes. This isn't goodness. This isn't righteousness. This isn't God. This is you. You know. There's something. You know. They were accused of inciting a rebellion. What's that look like for us? Well, you know. What are you doing? Where, where, why are you going to? Why are you going to a Bible study? What, what are you reading there? What are you praying? Are you going to ruin our marriage with religion? Are you going to ruin? our family with all this God talk. How, how dare you step outside of the guidelines in the workplace to, to, to pray or worship or to try to do a Bible study or, you know, on and on it goes. Uh, you need to step back in, in line and stop this rebelliousness. So there's an accusation. It grows. Uh, the Bible tells us about this second kind of trouble. Even Jesus faced it. As Jesus served God, his brothers, you know, are you trying to make a name for yourself? The devil himself, you know, made accusation. Uh, but as Jesus even contemplated the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's had this prayer. He says, God, you know, I don't want to suffer. Take this cup away from me, but not my will be done. Your will be done. And, and he renews his, his commitment to follow through with the hardest thing, the greatest good, but the hardest thing that any person has ever had to do, to die on the cross. And yet... What does the Bible say? Jesus became deeply distressed and troubled. In serving God, he faced even greater distress and trouble. And yet, what did Jesus tell the 12? Earlier, he told them, you know, you're going to have trouble in this world. First kind, the second kind, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the trouble. I've overcome the world. And Jesus says, you know, trouble is almost like a guarantee. But in me, you can find peace. In me, you can find a way through the trouble. Whether it's if you're making and maybe deserved and you you sowed some things and now you're reaping some things and and it hurts, or you're serving God and people are opposing you, the trouble doesn't necessarily matter in a sense that God can still overcome both kinds. Now, by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 4, And that's where we're at. We read that Sanballat heard that the wall was moving forward. And the text says that he became furious. Ah, You know, we can read that. But when people become very disturbed, emotionally angry because of what we're doing, or what God's doing. That's a completely different ballgame. That's another level. So he continues to do some of the same thing. He mocked the Jews. But in chapter 4, he goes to his colleagues, and he goes to the powerful men of Samaria. We should expect that people will invoke whatever power, politically, economically, personally, they have access to. People will evoke their position, their status, their authority, their network, we should expect that anger will turn into some kind of a power play, all right? And we see this in culture. It's not enough that people oppose us and disagree with us and are angry with us. You know, they're going to bring the courts against us. They're going to bring these agencies or these institutions or these networks or these news sources. or the You know, they're going to use whatever they have to throw it at us. So now they're starting to align power structures against the people of God. And it's getting a little scarier when power turns against the people of God. And they start saying more stuff, more trash talk. What are these pathetic Jews doing? Are they going to restore this wall by themselves? Are they going to offer sacrifices? I mean, seriously, are they going to start, like, killing animals and offering their, their blood again in the name of their God? Are they ever going to finish this thing? Uh, Can they bring these burnt stones back to life? Can they bring a wall up out of this mound of rubble? They're just piling it on. Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who the Bible tells us was beside himself. Pause. There's anger, and then there's out of your mind. Furiously spitting mad, like irrationally. Like when people lose that sense of control, they've always been able to intimidate and bully everybody with the status quo, keep God's people, you know, like cupbearers quiet and in your spot and doing your thing. When we start to go off script and God takes us off script and God starts to do it, it's not just anger, it's this spitting mad irration. Like there is nothing more incredulous to an evil person, to a perverse mind, than the thought of people returning to their God. And, uh, you know, this guy's beside himself, and when people are beside themselves, they stay like stupid, ridiculous things like, if even a fox climbed up here on this wall, he would break down your stone wall. Ooh, you know, uh, that's a tough one right there, I don't know. But they just don't even know what to say, they're so spitting mad. How quickly we abandon the things of God, look at displeasure, ridicule, mockery of our beliefs, our values, uh, our faith. How much more than when it escalates to scorn and insult, when people start to get angry, when they get beside themselves, when they start threatening us with power, loss, whatever it is, whether you find yourself in the first kind of trouble Nehemiah chapter one, the trouble that comes from running from God, whether you find yourself in the trouble that comes in returning to God, Nehemiah chapter four, what do you do when that trouble is staring you in the face? So first of all, you get on your knees before the God of heaven and you take your trouble, whatever its theme or source is, you take your trouble and you put it on God's shoulders. That is what Nehemiah does in chapter one. That is what he does in chapter 4. That is what he does throughout. And it's what our Lord and Savior did as well. So you take your trouble and you say, God, here's my trouble. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Nehemiah prays. He says, listen, God, we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads. Let them be taken as plunder. Let them be taken into exile. You know, take the things that have happened to us. Let them experience them, and let's see what they're made of, right? Let's see how their talk changes. Don't cover their guilt. Let their don't let their sin be erased from your sight. They have angered your builders, God, and we know that they've angered you. Take your trouble and ask God to deal with it. Take your frustrations. Take your anger. Take that sense of injustice. That that outrage that you feel being attacked, serving God, whatever, God, make our problem your problem. That's what Nehemiah does. It's just a lesson. It's right there. Let's take it. Let's let's practice that. But then secondly, and this is very important, don't change course because you encounter trouble serving God. Uh, Don't change course. If you find the first kind of trouble, repent, change your course serve God. But when you're serving God and you get encounter, you keep going. Hand me another brick, right? You keep going. You keep serving. You keep going through and you see the work through. Don't grow weary in doing good, the Bible says. Nehemiah 4, six. I love Nehemiah 4, six. So we rebuilt the wall. It's like, eh, so what? We, we rebuilt the wall. Until the entire wall was joined together up to half of its height. For the people had the will to keep on keeping on. They had the will to keep on working. I noticed something in Nehemiah that was tremendously encouraging to me. I go back and I look at the earlier stuff and it makes more sense in light of the later parts of the story. But Nehemiah 2.18. In Nehemiah 2.18, Nehemiah says that God strengthened the builder's hands to do the work. Do you remember that? God strengthened the builder's hands. They didn't go to the gym and and build up their own strength. They sought strength, and God gave them strength to do the work. Now, here in chapter 4, verse 6, it says something even deeper and more profound, in my opinion. It says the people found the will to do the work. They found the strength, they found the, where did they find it? And I thought of this verse in the New Testament, in Philippians 2.13, where Paul says to us, it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. You know, when the ridicule starts and the trouble starts, you lose your strength because you're physically worn out by it, but you also lose your will to do it. And so you're exhausted. It shows on your face. Your shoulders are slumped. You're you're dragging your feet. You're spent. You're at the end of yourself. You've lost the will. You're demoralized, demonized, discouraged, despised, depressed, beat up. You've been there. God isn't just your refuge in times of trouble, your ever-present help. He is also your strength. He's also your empowerer. He gives you the willpower, the strength to even want to want to do something, right? To get out of bed and, and to put another foot. Like we're gonna we're gonna build this wall. We're gonna pay the cost another day. We're gonna keep going forward according to the good purpose of God. You know, a little preview later on in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse ten. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We're not finding happiness within ourselves. We're not finding joy within ourselves. The Lord is also giving us his joy in the midst of the work. So I started to think, like, there's a lot of reasons to pray in the face of trouble, regardless of which kind we're dealing with here. Number one, we pray for God to be... Our refuge, our strength, our shield, our protector in times of trouble. So God, save me from the seeds that I've sown or God, save me from the seeds the evil one is sowing. Uh, God, be my refuge. Be my castle, my fortress and, and surround me and protect me from the evil one. But then secondly, strengthen my hands to act according to your good purpose, and thirdly, give me the will to act according to your good purpose, and then on top of all that, give me the joy to will and to act and to seek you as my. Give me joy on top of that, like a double measure of joy. You know what joy is? It is salt in the wound of God's enemies. Because they thought they could bully and intimidate. And when they see your sad face and your distress, you know, they feel like, hey, they're just hanging on by a thread. I'm going to snuff them out like a smoldering wick. I'm going to snap them like a bruised wick. There's nothing that unnerves the enemies of God like when they see joy on your face. It's like, are you enjoying this persecution? Like, I can't break their spirit when they know they can't break the spirit of the living God within us. They know that they've been defeated. Uh, When you have joy, that's when they really know your strength as one of God's people. And when you have strength, it's because the gracious hand of God is upon you. And when you have the willpower, it's because God has empowered you to will and to act. And when you know God is for you and they see it on your face, then they know they're on the wrong side of history. The enemies escalate the more they feel out of control and out of power. They become more irrational and beside themselves, right? I love uh, the book of Philippians because right after Paul says, hey, God works in you to will and act according to his good purpose, he says, all right, so do everything without complaining and grumbling and arguing. Be Be blameless and pure. Be children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. The enemies of God are pouring on the darkness. And what's God doing in us? He's just making our shine, our stars shine a little bit brighter. And so Paul says, rejoice, rejoice. He says that repeatedly. Like, he's in prison. It seems like everything's against him. He's like, rejoice. Like, God's willing. He's, he's making you act. He's giving you the joy. He's giving you protection. He's... We got so much reason to have joy on our face. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now... What do you think is going to happen in this story? They got all this going on. Joy now. Nehemiah four eight. When Sanballat and Tobiah and now the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashodites. You know, we went from two to three, and now we've got five. Maybe Gesha, Maybe he took a, a. I don't see him in the list. Maybe he said, "No, I'm not getting in this." In Judah, it was rumored the strength of the laborers is failing there's so much rubble they're not going to be able to sort through it all they're never going to be able to rebuild the wall the rumor mill was against these folks and their enemies were saying hey they don't realize it but we're going to be right amongst them and we're going to kill them and and stop their work we're just going to we're going to infiltrate their ranks and when the jews who lived nearby arrived they we terrified. They were terrorized. They, they, everywhere you turn, they're going to attack us. Like, we don't have a chance. You know, this is something that we should realize about terror and terrorists. Terrorists really are quite powerless, if you really think about what their overt power is. But they can do acts that give them kind of like a symbolic appearance, that they are way more powerful than they really are. And if you buy into terror, if you buy into that fear, why then you're giving them their control and their power back. And so that's exactly uh, they're using terror and terrorist tactics now against the people of God to try to use fear to get them to defeat themselves. And Nehemiah, you got to love this guy. He's like, hey, let them let them plot, let them talk, uh, but. When God's enemies cannot bully intimidate you, they're going to threaten real violence. They're going to threaten terror. And, and what are we to do then? Because sometimes those aren't just idle threats. And, and, and even if a terrorist can, can do something symbolic, that symbolic thing, can, can, like 9-11, it can still be very, very painful. It may not defeat us and completely destroy us, but we still don't want it to happen, right? When real persecution uh, visits us, what are we to do? Let's review well, we continue what we've been doing all along. We don't stop. Give me another stone. Give me another stone. You don't stop. But more than that, I love Nehemiah 4.9. Just right in the midst of all, here's the Ammonites and Ashadites and all these. So we pray to our God. I love that. All right, so what? So we pray to our God. And verse 9 says, we also stationed a guard because of them day and night. You know, the Bible says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. It tells us to be sober-minded, to be alert, and to be on guard. We're praying, we're trusting God, but we're also taking measures of defense, common-sense measures of defense. And I think that's another piece of advice is don't forget that danger can be real. And don't forget whose battle this is. In Nehemiah 4, we read these words. Nehemiah says, I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall because those were vulnerable areas. I stationed men there. I stationed them by families. Why? You got these families with children and and mothers. I put people by these families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And after I made an inspection, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, I told them, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and, you know, you fight for your countrymen and you fight for your sons and you fight for your daughters and your wives and your homes. You know, you take your sword, you take your bow, you take your spear, right? You have a gun or whatever. You have a defense, we have a national defense, we have personal defense, we have city defense. There's nothing on in my view, about defensive measures, but here's the corrective. You leave room for God to do some asymmetrical warfare in the midst of it. You're readied and you're defended, but you let God bring the fight. Nehemiah tells these people something that seems contradictory. He says, you fight. Then he also says, The Lord will fight for you. So it's not just a flesh and blood human equation. We're defending ourselves, but God is part of the calculation. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme, well, we know the devil's scheme. Uh, But when they heard we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, see, God was part of it. They were praying. That's where pray. God can do asymmetrical things. God had frustrated. Every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. And from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and with the other held a weapon. Each of the builders had his own sword strapped around his waist while he was building. And the one who sounded the ram's horn, Nehemiah says, was beside me. And I told the nobles, officials, and everybody else, hey, the work is enormous. We're kind of getting spread out. The devil likes to divide and conquer. So we're all spread out. We're all separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the sound of the ram's horn, that is your signal to rally at the point where you hear that horn. But... Our God will fight for us. We're going to fight, but our God is going to fight for us. So we continued the work. With half of men holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. And at that time I said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I said to my brothers, my servants, and the men on guard with me, we never changed our clothes. Why? Because we each carried our weapon Even when we were like washing and bathing, like we had our weapon with us. You never lay down your arms before the enemy, but you also pray for God to frustrate, to work. All right. So somebody said, what's it mean to keep guard? How do we keep guard as God's people? Uh, Keeping guard means you have the sobriety of mind to know the enemy, to understand his schemes, to not be naive about his intentions and what he's doing. There's a sobriety of mind that comes in guarding. But it also means having a heart to pray and to invite God to be part of the defense and part of the offense and to be at work. And part of guarding is having an eye that keeps watch day and night. Uh, The enemy never stops. He's like a roaring lion. He's waiting for that opportune moment. It also means having the ear to hear. What is God saying to us? What is God's wisdom? What is God's perspective on this situation? And keeping guard also means having the faith to stand together. We're not going to allow ourselves to get isolated, to get separated, to get divided. We're going to stand together in faith. And and part of that is we're going to ask God with us to take the battle to the enemy. You may find this interesting how does the new testament tell us as a church to be it says finally in ephesians 6 finally be strengthened by the lord and his vast strength he gave strength to the builder's hands what's it look like for us today we ask god for strength you put on the full armor of god so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven. Keep in perspective that the battle we most need to win isn't against a person, as threatening as it may be, it's against something that's behind the person. And for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the day of evil, having prepared everything to take your stand. We prepare And we we take this stand, but we're doing it with God. Stand, therefore, with the the truth like a belt around your waist. You know, the truth, power can't stand in the face of truth. Truth just obliterates whatever powers are out there. The truth of the gospel, the truth in itself is so powerful. Uh, We need to just hold out the truth of the situation and let the truth Do its work. Wear that like a belt around your waist. You don't jettison your character or the righteousness of Christ. Let righteousness be like armor on your chest. Uh, Your feet, let them be sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You know, we're we're gonna achieve peace here. That's God's outcome. Not escalated conflict, but peace. God's going to break the status quo of conflict to bring peace. Remember what his agenda is. In every situation, You take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's the most important sword. You pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. You stay alert with perseverance, interceding for all the saints. We all watching out for each other. But what you don't do is you don't stop building. Paul says, pray for me. The message that it may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel. I'm an ambassador in chains for this gospel. Pray that I may be bold enough to speak about the gospel as I should. We don't run. We keep building. We keep on keeping on. We keep persevering. Uh, We pray. We invite God in. And God, our trouble is his, and he will deal, and he will frustrate those who oppose him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you in repentance, and we turn away from those things where we opposed you, and and we were in rebellion against you, and we turn away from that, and we ask you to meet us in the trouble of our own creation. But Father, we also ask you to meet us in this trouble that we have, that we face in serving you. And we ask that you be our refuge, our protection, our strength. We ask that you give us the will to keep on keeping on, to keep doing the good, to fulfill this purpose that you've created for us to do. Father, we ask that you give us joy, that you allow our spirit to have a victory, not just our hands and our will, but our spirit. You give us joy in the things that bring you glory. Rattle the confidence of our enemies. Turn this thing upside down on their heads. May we bring you glory in the way we live and serve. And give me another brick, Lord, give me another brick. May we continue on for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.